We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, everybody. Before we get started today, I just want to mention that we recorded this on Sunday, and Fabrizio Romano has reported that the Gabriel Jesus signing is done. Uh, Five-year deal, which is really good news. Very excited about that. And it looks like um, it may be announced Monday, which means as this podcast comes out, we may have announced a major signing, really, I think, our top target of the summer, and the podcast isn't squarely focused on that. But what I would say is we have talked about Gabriel Jesus at length on this podcast, how we think he will play, where we think he will play, how excited we are for him to arrive, the metrics. We've done a data dive on him on Patreon. We've done a scouting video for him on Patreon, and we will discuss him again on the podcast and and a lot. Um, This episode has so many interesting uh, discussion points, and a lot of them, I think, pivot around the fact that Jesus has arrived. We talk a little bit about uh, whether Arteta has excuses or not this season for success. You get more of that in just a minute. And um, a bit about Saka's contract and a lot of other fun things, along with maybe a little bit of laughing at Chelsea. So there's plenty of good stuff in here, but if you're tuning in, expecting to hear specifically Gabriel Jesus stuff, there's plenty of that on previous episodes, and there will be plenty more of that to come. So with that having been said, now here's the podcast. <laughs> All the transfers just about to happen at Arsenal. And meanwhile, over at Chelsea, it looks like they want to employ the United model. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. That's right. It does look like Chelsea's approach is to emulate what Manchester United have done. And I have to say, I am extremely here for it. Um, Yeah, Todd Bowley. He wants to be the technical director, which makes sense given his vast knowledge of European football. He's a deal maker. Deal makers know how to make deals, right? He he apparently has said that he wants to uh, bring trades into European football. That's right. None of this transfer fee nonsense. We'll do trades. Sure, Todd. We'll do trades. See how that works out for you. But his first and primary responsibility, of course, is to bring Cristiano Ronaldo to Stamford Bridge. 
seems like the right place for them to invest their money. So I have to say I'm enjoying so far the early returns on what appears to be the Chelsea strategy under Todd Bowley, uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to stay enjoyable. So we, we, we got to be careful about how much schadenfreude we lean into prior to having all the information at our disposal. Now, over on the Arsenal front, Manchester City just tweeted out a compilation video, Gabriel Jesus's best moments from the season. Is it presaging an announcement that is just imminent? Maybe even as you are listening to this, we're recording on Sunday, always dangerous, as Monday morning may be the arrival of Gabriel Jesus. But let's face it, we've talked about Gabriel Jesus a lot. We've scouting videoed Gabriel Jesus. We've inquired about whether we're excited about it, and we all are. And so I think we've covered that. So I'm, I'm not too worried that we will have missed out on the big news. If it happens, which we expect it will, we've covered it. And we'll cover it again. And I should mention again, if you want a Gabriel Jesus scouting video or Tielemans or Lissandro Martinez or William Saliba or uh, Fabio Vieira or um, Rafinha, they're all up on Patreon. Head there. I think you'll really enjoy them. If you don't want to head there, thank you for being here. Honestly, either way, makes us thrilled. And the people who are thrilled to uh, be here with you, for you, and maybe even with me uh, is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Hello, pause. Woohoo! We have approved PTO for Clive today, paid time off for Clive, who has done, it says here, 104% of the podcasts we have done this year. So he is he is actually on mandatory PTO today, but don't worry. He will probably be back on three podcasts we do tomorrow and the four we do on Tuesday. When I say tomorrow, again, we're recording on Sunday, so apologies. Let's just have a little lighthearted moment. A couple of topics that are going to come up today. Sack is contract. Five subs rule. I wanted to talk about the five subs rule today because when Clive isn't on the pod, my goal is to have him do maximum screaming at his listening device. I know he's desperate to discuss that topic, so I wanted to do it on an episode when he's not on. Don't worry, we'll do it again with him. Um, maybe a little bit of the implications of the World Cup coming up, but let's have a little fun just first. Tim, the Roman Abramovich era at Chelsea has not been fun for any of us, I think it's fair to say. I think it is responsible for a lot of negative implica- uh, negative externalities that have crept into the Premier League and global football, period. I mean, I think he was one of the first to really engage in the sort of sports washing and um, financial doping that has now become all too common in the sport. The end of that era is something that I think we were prepared to celebrate, but also with the understanding that it didn't necessarily mean automatically that Chelsea would stop being a problem, that Chelsea would decline, Todd Bowley did spend uh, and has spent a lot as the owner of the Dodgers. They have been successful and become sort of a super club in baseball in, in some respects during his his time there. So I think there's some curiosity. If you do want to go and listen to what Giant Gunner had to say about Todd Bowley on interview we did with him, he had some interesting insight on him off the pitch and away from sport. But the early news, Tim, is that he wants to be the technical director, at least for now, that he wants trading in football. What, what, what's this transfer fee nonsense? Let's do trades. And if the reporting is accurate, Cristiano Ronaldo is a target. So like all of this stuff sounds great so far. And I'm curious how you're reacting to at least the very, very earliest signs of what the Todd Bowley era might look like for Chelsea. Yeah, I think so with the sporting director thing, I take that with a little bit of a pinch of a pinch. Well, I say a pinch of salt. I don't think that's the right phrase actually, because it's a thing that's happening. Um, but, I, I think first off is um, uh, what's her name, Mariano Marina Granoskoya. Gran- That's it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So she's staying for the interim over the summer. So there will be someone there uh, with with some level of expertise in the field, and and it is 
I gather, an interim arrangement while they look for someone else. And also, I think you could look at it both ways. You could, you could look at it as like, oh, wow, he, he thinks he can do this job. What an idiot. Hmm. Um, and another way of looking at it, and, and this might be a wrong, uh, an incorrect reading of it, but another way of looking at it is actually if you're just about to own a club um, in a sport that you where you don't have as much on-the-ground experience – you know, maybe there's an argument for doing a job like that for a couple of months and just seeing what the lie of the land is, um, mm, and seeing like what is the, yeah, what is this job? What what does it entail? <laughs> like, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone here. So, why don't I do it? Albeit with someone um, with the experience, and then and then I really I know kind of what I'm doing, or not what I'm doing. I know what the role entails, and therefore I know what the skills are that are needed, and therefore I can make the best appointment. And there's probably a very good argument that if Stan Kroenke had done that, or Josh Kroenke had done that a couple of years ago, we might not have ended up with someone like Raul Sanyehi, for example. Interesting, yeah, I guess that's so fair. You, yeah. <laughs> you can look at it that way. I, I would say I am expecting Chelsea to have a bit of a transition for this to be a bit unsettling, just because we've seen it ourselves with our manager right um it, it, that just happens when you yeah. when your entire club is defined by the image of one person and it is because no coach has stuck around there um you know Mourinho is probably the closest to someone who's given Chelsea an identity but it's Abramovich that's given them their identity we've seen it man united have seen it when that individual goes there's a transition no, no even if you manage it well there's a transition there's a little bit of um, an unsettling period and we've seen contracts run down for some key players and things like that so I'm expecting it to be a little bit bumpy it's just the extent to how bumpy it is yeah. like is that bumpiness they, they, they might like finish third or fourth for a couple of seasons and not really come close to winning the league which is kind of what they've done for the last couple of seasons as well like falling back into that top four chasing pack do they just stay there for a little bit before trying to work their way back up, do they really fall down because the the you know the big six, the top six, going to be a seven soon? with Newcastle's becoming yep. more competitive all the time. Um, so so that part of it's really interesting. The Ronaldo part, that's the part that gives me a bit of hope. Um, to be honest, because that looks to me like a guy going, "Oh fuck, I'm following Abramovich," <laughs> and that is a really really difficult thing for me to do as an owner. And um, that that would strike me as the kind of, um, you know, the typical dumb owner thing to do, to go, I need to make a statement and going and getting Ronaldo yeah. and thinking, this is what everyone will want. And, uh, and I think even Chelsea fans who by and large have been fine with, you know, the Chelsea model of just throwing money at, at everything and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. I think even they would be like, no, I don't think we want Ronaldo really. Actually, <laughs> yeah. um, at this stage, so yeah, that, that's the bit. That's the bit that I guess, as an Arsenal fan, gives me the most hope, if that's the right word. Yeah, and look, I, this is the reality. There is a learning curve to anything new, and if this guy wants to be, I mean, to your point about, well, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for him to learn by taking the job for a summer. But transfer windows aren't training grounds. You know, if, if you blow it that can have implications for multiple seasons. We've seen that ourselves. And so even if Bowley gets good at it eventually, if it takes him a couple of seasons of making some silly mistakes along the lines of signing a Cristiano Ronaldo, I can live with that. Like I, I can live with that because I still think it leaves us in a position where they are on the downward 
that their direction is is down, right? And and that's all I wanted to see. I sort of wanted to see any evidence, Paul, that Chelsea's trajectory would change from what it has been. I don't think Chelsea's been like brilliantly run, but you can spend enough to sort of bypass or circumvent your your errors, right? To the point where there's just enough talent in the team that you're going to have a floor that's top four or better. I think if Todd Bowley is going to come in and say, hey, I'm the guy, I know what I'm doing. And, and like the, th- the reason I, I latched onto the trading concept is it strikes me as a guy who like bought a club, looked into the market of how players are like bought and sold, and was like, well, this is hugely inefficient and expensive. Why don't we just do what we do in America where we trade? And like, there's a lot of obvious reasons why you can't do it. I don't want to bore people with them. Some of them are contract-related because in America, when you trade, the contract goes with the player. Whereas in football, that is not the case. The clubs have to agree to a new contract. There's international movement here, which is another issue, and you know different courts and different laws and rules re- relating to that. There's the agents who are going to oppose that kind of movement, of course, because the transfer fees are good for the agents. The transfer fees are also good for the clubs. The other problem is if you're a Chelsea and you want to take the best player off a small club in the Dutch league, did you know? Is there a player they can take from you where they can afford his wages? Is there necessarily a player you want from them if you're trying to offload a player? Like, there's just a million reasons it doesn't necessarily work. And so the the suggestion that that's how it should work to me is a bit of an indication of a lack of understanding of the market he's moved into, which is weird because let's be honest, I sort of presume the guy is smart, but maybe that includes a bit of arrogance that he can just come in and Americanize European football. There may be a brashness and arrogance there that's a part of it. I don't know. So overall, Paul, like what what do you make of the earliest signs of of the Todd Bowley era at Chelsea? Well, I think Tim's way too reasonable for this Schadenfreude gig. Um, yeah. This is sensational. This is Okay, thank you. Thank you. This, this is, is more than I hope okay. for. Uh, he's he's appointed himself technical director of soccer which is the first red flag. Um, <laughs> he's sitting down. He's like doing Johnny Big Pants with the, I'll buy your Cristiano Ronaldo and we'll tra- <laughs> like, fuck off. And then he's done the classic, I'm not just going to outsmart the market. I'm going to outsmart football because I've been watching it for a few months and it really doesn't make any sense to me. Um mm. Where there's mystery, there's money, somebody told me once. But that works two ways. Like there's uh, a lot of people, including Stan Kroenke, call football the Wild West of sport. It's still the Wild West of sport. It's chaotic. It's it's crazy. It's different from country to country, um, continent to continent. The idea that you'll ever line up players and agents with the weird and wonderful contracts across cultures, languages. I mean, occasionally something like that aligns. Um, but as you said, like uh, uh, the disparity between the PL and other, like, I love it. Maybe he's just floating shit out there to feel clever and to make maybe. some waves yeah, and to get some news and to make the faithful feel excited. <clears throat> question is, is the stuff he's saying actually making the faithful uh, feel excited. I just think he's going to have a very tin ear for how to please his supporters and how the whole thing works. I think the culture thing, your favorite topic, mm. is huge. I do here. love culture. Yeah, but it's <laughs> On huge, huge in an organization. Forget the football. Like I get you with with a football team and a squad. Like start with talent. 
culture is important. You know, I, I get your whole gig there and agree with it. But in an organization like Granoskaya, uh, as an interim, I mean, I've seen interims. They're basically tidying their desk, answering questions, helping, advising. They're not directing. Uh, the whole think of Abramovich, like how dominant a personality he must have been. I mean, he was a yeah. fucking oligarch. Like the, everybody <laughs> shat themselves and everybody did their job thinking, will this pre- please Roman Abramovich? And now it's totally different. Now they got working out who cares about what, what they care about, how many people they have to please, jockeying, positioning. The one thing people in Chelsea Football Club aren't thinking of is, will we get top two, top one next year? They're thinking, how's my position? How's my job? What will the new boss think? What's he want? What do we want? What's our plan? Is it the old plan? Is it the new plan? I think there's su- such opportunity. Like they've, they're plenty of money, but they're also a very expensive club with a lot of ex- very expensive operations going on. Uh, they have like four hundred thousand players out on loan. Uh, that can st- <laughs> that can start going wrong quick too, right? It, yeah, it, easily. Very yeah. much so. Hopefully. When when Todd Bowley gets in there and decides to make their loan system a little bit better and a little more efficient <laughs> and like and everybody's like, oh, what's he want me to do? What's he want me to say? Um, no, I. I this I'm reminds me of it. when Kanye tweeted, "I'm a fix wolves," and Todd Bowley's just here like, "I'm a fix football." Go for it, Todd. Have at it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. No, I think this could be really, really good. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, look, it could be okay, but it could be really, really good, really great. I think the competing ideas in my head that are incompatible is Todd Bowley as a guy who was really good as a baseball owner, which there are people that would push back on that assertion, by the way, but at least showed a willingness to spend, a willingness to invest the resources necessary. Now, where those resources came from, yeah, that that could be a bit of an issue for Chelsea as as the markets change, capital markets and things like that. But with some of the earliest signs of how he wants to come in and do this as a guy who clearly, clearly does not yet as far as I can tell, have a full understanding of what he's doing. Now, look, we're three guys who just like football, who have a podcast, and we're saying this like billionaire market master of the universe guy isn't smart enough to figure out why trades are a bad idea in football. Like He probably does get it a little more than we're giving credit for, but never underestimate the power of ego, and especially the egos of people who have been as successful as he is, to think that actually my idea is right and the current systems are wrong and I can just bend those systems to my will. And <clears throat> I think in European football, he may have met his match there. So yeah, let's I'm, hope that's look, the case. Look, I'm sure he'll mm-hmm. get there quickly, but FSG took a little while. KSE took quite a while. Um like we j- well, and some never get there. Like the Glazers or Hicks and Gillette, right? So yeah, know, I mean, so like just because they're super smart people at something, uh, like baseball has trained him in uh, for a whole other world that works different, different rhythms, different ways of being successful. Um, yep. First, he needs to learn humility. I'm not seeing much of that yet. So it, it, he I could be really that. good in three years' time or two years' time. There's a great. Uh, uh, chance that he's going to be below mediocre and his organization for a little while. Now, Chelsea are in a strong spot in terms of their squad, but, uh, you know, just a little bit of off 
is plenty of all. So we'll see. Well, that's the thing. Realize you're talking about a club that has been able to essentially outspend everyone other than Manchester City, and in some cases, even them. And that's how they've achieved everything they've achieved. Yep. And so different culture now. If all that happens now is he's a little off in his understanding of the game and the spending isn't the same. Yep. That can lead to massive marginal declines, you know, for, for Chelsea. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it, Tim, unless you have more to add on that. I'm, I'm prepared to move on from praying for the downfall of Chelsea. And, and if you have more to add on that, I certainly think it's a topic everybody has patience for. No, I have nothing more to add on that other than okay. to continue to will the downfall of Chelsea. <laughs> well, said, although that, well that, that should be implied, um, but it, it, you know, it does pay to say it every now and then. And by the way, Tim, I, I guess you're doubly invested in that too, right? Because they are a problem for Arsenal women as well. And, you know, there, there was a lot of focus on that. And we don't know that Todd Bowley's going to feel that that's as big a priority. Maybe he will. We, we don't know, but maybe he won't, right? Yeah, although they have, they have already gone quite big um, on a defender. So I, I'd say that, I'd say that, that yeah, they're, they're probably going to stick with that, uh, certainly from a, a spending aspect. To be fair, it does feel very American business person mentality to think it's more efficient for me to spend in the women's game where the return on that spending is bigger and I don't have to outlay as much and that game is growing, which, you know, good, it should, and that's wonderful. And then look at the men's game and say it's sort of this calcified mess and I'm not going to spend a billion pounds because it just doesn't return on investment. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Let's get to another issue of spending, and that is spending on our own players, we haven't really dug into this much yet. We've hinted at it, talked around it, been shouted down by Paul a number of times. So that really could be any topic. I haven't really given away the ghost there. Um, but I'm talking about Bakayo Saka's contract. It is an issue that I do not consider to be at the critical stage. Like, I don't, I don't think we are at a point where it's crisis level. I think it could even go into next summer without being crisis level. But it is at a minimum a consideration for this summer if the club and the player can find an accommodation. We know that the agent is not the easiest to deal with. We know that the agent did secure a good contract for Balogun, did secure an excellent contract for Eddie and Kedia. And I do wonder if some of that is associated to the Saka situation. I'll explain more on that in a moment. But Tim, there's so many layers to this onion in my mind. You know, I remember with Cesc Fabregas, there was a suggestion that we didn't properly surround him with talent, which made him less inclined to stay. Now, I I push back against that assertion because I think Cesc Fabregas always wanted to go home, right? He had close friends. He had an, an affection for Pep. He was from La Masia. He wanted to go home. Saka is home. So there is no other place he'd want to go that he is more drawn to. But... We are bringing in a lot of talent, as far as I can tell, and showing Saka that he's not going to be this single point of failure at 21 years old where he has to carry all the weight by himself. Having said that, I do wonder if moves like Rafinha, even links to Rafinha, are a way of just sort of adding a little bit of of a stack of chips to our side of the table in the negotiation. Say, you know what, look, we're going to surround you. We're going to give you another player that can spell you if you're not you know, at 100%, you know, where you don't have to go 90 minutes every game the whole season long. But oh, by the way, also, if we can't reach an accommodation, 
this player is very good and this player gives us optionality. In any negotiation, you have to have optionality because, Tim, if you're at the negotiating table and you can't afford to walk away from it, you're not actually in a negotiation, right? So how do you feel about the extent to which Arsenal has any any scope for negotiating on this and the extent to which Saka's side of the negotiation really can impose their will on, on the club? Yeah, I, another Simpsons reference coming up. There's a there's an episode where um, I think Marge asks Simps, uh, Homer to go away and reflect on what he brings to the relationship, and he goes away for a couple of days, and he says, "I've worked it out. What I bring you, complete and utter dependence." And that, <laughs> Is that our side of negotiation? Here? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's about but, right. Yeah, but but that's that's a really because I have been thinking about this like a lot of people, like the links with Hafinha, like and and like you, Elliot. I'm I well, I think everyone's curious about it, right? And and a lot of us could say, well, maybe like Sack is going to play the left eight, and if he is, brilliant. I'm I'm fine with that. I do think that would be a bit weird, not weird, but that would be surprising to do that without having done it for like a year to suddenly decide that. And and I guess maybe we just it for burned. five minutes at the end of the season, Tim. So we know yeah. it's going to work now. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe we're all just burned and we need to get on board with a new way of thinking, but buying guys for 60 million in positions where our best player plays, that's not, that's not how we've really done things. Um, I don't know. Maybe you could say, I mean, maybe we have, maybe when we bought Reyes, you know, we had Omri there, I mean, Bergkamp was getting on, wasn't he? I mean, I, I guess buying Reyes when we had Henri um, was was one of them. That that's kind of buying Aubameyang when we had Lacazette, but Lacazette was not our best player. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that was much more, I think, about not really being on yeah, board with the Lacazette yeah. thing. So 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 it is interesting because, like, whichever way you slice it, they can't both play. Um, but you but you're right. It could it could be it could be that part of the negotiation is, for all we know, it could be look, or, or his agent saying whatever, my client doesn't want to play every single minute of every single game at the moment anymore because he's 20 and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to do a Jack Wilshere and be looking at doing his coaching badges when he's 30 because he can't get a contract. You know, it, it could be that. It could be like, um, you know, like a, the, the whole aggressiveness this summer could be a part of the negotiation because what's what's um, interesting about this is we've heard so little about the Saka contract, like, and you can interpret that both ways. Like, there hasn't really been any speculation linking him elsewhere, and in fact, even Man City, I think, came out and were fairly unequivocal and said, like, no, we're not, we're not looking at this at the moment. But yeah. I'm sure his agent would be That's pointing like the scariest statement possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I'm sure like his agent. Um, you know, probably be saying to Arsenal, look, Mohamed Salah's got only one year left on his Liverpool contract, so they're going to need uh, a right-sided inverted forward next summer. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure all of that, like, dance of negotiations going on. But, like, generally speaking, yeah, spending, like, £65 million on Hafinha when you've got Saka there, which is not to say you're not allowed to have two good players, but, right. you know, it, it does seem like... like it would be very un-Arsenal to spend sixty-five million on someone who's not going to play, um, who's not going to play most of the time. So it, it is really, really interesting. My, um, I, I'm not 
Like, I don't think, particularly with a player of this talent, I don't think we're at a stage where, oh my God, if he doesn't sign this summer, we have to sell. Of course we don't. Like, we could sell with one year left. We can see this summer, when you've got a brilliant player with one year left, there's no fucking bargains. We know we're paying for one right now. Over the last 48 hours, we've slapped like 50 million on the table for a guy um, who's got one year left on his contract. Like if you're good and you're fairly young, there's no bargain there. Like we'd still get, we'd, you know, if it came to it next summer, it came to the bad thing, we'd get paid. Um, you know, Especially given that he's not on the the big contract, right? So I yeah, mean, yeah. you're not saying he's on 250 and we want 80 million. You're saying yeah. he's on 50 or whatever ridiculous yeah. wage he's currently on. You can get 100 million for a player like that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I don't think my my and, and and I don't know maybe Saka's agent maybe maybe none of this has happened, but maybe Saka's agent has kind of said, mm, "We want to see what you're going to do um in which, which I think would be a completely reasonable thing for him to do to say, "I want to see who's coming in." Um, but what's interesting, though, is just bringing someone in who absolutely outrightly plays his position. It reminds me of that Arsene Wenger thing where Wenger was asked about, I think, Vieira coming into his office and, and asking about summer transfers. And Wenger said, like, every player wants you to buy someone in every position except theirs. Yeah, that's <laughs> He was funny. like, yeah. Vieira <laughs> didn't come in and ask me to buy a new central midfielder every summer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I, I do think it's really interesting because I just maybe maybe it is just in the interest of rotation and and things like that but i you know it 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 is it's not like normal arsenal behavior it's much more like man city uh-huh. behavior and uh, yeah which you could say but it's like but man city have actually got the money to do that they can spend that much on like riyad mahrez and say hmm, you might play one in two like um, you know, it, it's I, I, th- I think it's a really, really interesting situation, and and I think there's definitely more to it yeah. somewhere than just we want like two good players for every position or or whatever, or someone's got a different position in mind, or or you know, there's Saka's agent or or something like there there is something happening here. I think, um, and that doesn't necessarily have to mean it's it's a bad thing, particularly if it if it means we get good players. Whoop de do, great. Yeah, I mean, they say when you see hoof prints or whatever, think horses, not zebras, right? So, like, it's it's important to sometimes just step back and say, you know what, we might just be trying to buy Rafinha because he's a really, really good player, and we want really good players, we need more goals and assists, and he provides it. We'll find a way to use all these players together. And, like, that's fine. I want to stop this conversation for five seconds to make a point. One, I don't think we should sell Bukayo Saka at any price for any reason. Like, no one here is advocating that. Two, I don't think Saka will go. Okay, I want to be clear, but I I think you have to have a willingness to at least explore what it's going to take to get this done and how it would work. Because what if they sit down at the table and Saka's agent says, we want 500 grand a week? Do you give him 500? Again, and I know you're listening to this saying, he's not going to do that. Like, if you have no leverage in a negotiation, then the other side dictates terms completely. And we saw that happen with Theo Walcott, and we saw that happen with Mesut Ozil, and we saw that happen with Aubameyang, and we saw how those all worked out. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen with Saka, but at a minimum, you have to credibly be able to sit at the other side of the table and know that if the terms aren't acceptable, you can walk away. 
Right now, Arsenal are not in a position where they can walk away from the negotiating table under any circumstances. Maybe bringing in a Rafinha lets you sit at that table and credibly say, we'll go to 200, but we can't go to 250. And then Saka has to decide, do I want to be at Arsenal? And if he does, he has to say to his agent, let's take the 200. I want to stay here. I like where I'm at. Because otherwise, you have no ability to negotiate. None. None whatsoever. And, you know, I just, I just don't think you can run a club where you decide a player is important enough that they can dictate the terms entirely. We want 350 a week. We want a 40 million pound release clause. Like you can't say yes to that. You can't. So how do you put yourself in a position to have negotiating power? Maybe you give Eddie and Keddie a little bit more money than he was going to get. And the agent says, okay, okay. Quid pro quo. Okay. And you bring in Rafinha and you say, you know what? If the SACA deal gets sideways on us, we're not dead. We're not dead. We love having both of them but we can survive having one of them. So now we can sit at the table and credibly explore this. Paul, I know your feeling. Saka wants to be at Arsenal. He will do whatever it takes to be at Arsenal. He will not negotiate at any level. He'll take $5 an hour to play for Arsenal. His love for Arsenal is so great that negotiations matter nothing. I feel like I've framed your argument um, <laughs> in the most respectful and, and uh, honest way possible. But have I, have I captured the essence of it or, or am I off by a little bit? Yeah, mostly. No. Um, look, it's all <laughs> going to... I couldn't to, help myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all going to be fine. There's kind of a pattern here. We've seen it before. Ultimately, Saka does want to be at the club. Uh, I agree with that, yes. It's the same agent. Um, and the pattern is they negotiate slow because that's the real leverage. They know Smith Rowe. They know Saka. They know yeah. Eddie. They know uh, you name it ultimately want to be here at this point in their careers. We have leverage. It's really good for their careers. Um, they get another move, right? If uh, Saka signs this summer, he gets the chance to do the big one in three, four years. That's when you you take off. What What I suspect they're really negotiating on is optionality. That Saka, you know, maybe it's a release clause. Maybe it's the length of like uh, length of the deal for sure, right? Like that—that yeah. that has to be a critical component. If you're Saka's agent, maybe you say yes to 150, but it's got to be a three-year deal. You don't say yes to 150 on a five-year deal. Yeah, you know. And I tell you, the one thing you don't do if you're Arsenal: sit down with uh, Saka's agent to tell him how you're going to give Eddie a little extra so that he can help you with Saka. That's the kind of thing that would put humongous distance between the club and Saka when he hears that little gem. So I don't that think ain't you say happening. that, Paul. I don't think you say that. There's my, no my way of saying it, like, it, that, it w- that it may not blow out of control. There's it, just no it's way. It's more my point, Paul, that like if you are a little more... I'm, sometimes things don't have to be set. Like if I know I'm going to be sitting across the table from Saka's agent in a deal that is um, existentially important for the club. Mm-hmm. And I've developed a better rapport with him because I was a little more giving in the negotiation with Enkedia. I'm now sitting opposite a person on the other side of the table who I believe I've forged a better relationship with. And that may make the negotiation an easier one to accommodate. You, you know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not saying I it's would, a direct quid. I would quo, buy him you know? chocolates, but I'd take that okay, extra money you're buying towards Eddie and I'd give it to Saka. And I wouldn't buy Rafinha <laughs> to make Saka happy or to make Saka in terms of uh, developing the talent of the club so that he can look around mm-hmm. and see stars or any of the other guys. I do that because I'm Josh, Edu and Arteta and we're going for it. That's the only reason you do it. That's the only reason. Like what kind of misaligned 
motivations have you buying players either to piss off or to uh, encourage a player that you know you're the club for them you 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 go and be the club that the players want to be at and then in terms of competition like it's so man city man city had grealish foden blah 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 they all played about the same number of games last year it was like i looked at it yesterday and it was like 21 22 23 and 24 starts for the guys who play in those positions mares had 15 but by the time you put in his Champions League starts. He was right up with the other four. And that's not even counting Bernardo Silva, who started like 33. Like, they just throw all the talent into the attacking third. And that's other people's problems after that. They compete. Um, and you manage the egos and the and whatever. And look, Sa- we know how it's going to play out. Sack and his agent, through his agent, will neg- negotiate slow get a structure they like the club will pay more than they really had hoped to play because it's pay because it's an arsenal player but it's going to be good for us because if he's on a great contract he's going to be happy and we support his you know nobody's going to be coming in from in a year or two years time because and when they do he'll be on a nice fat wage and he'll feel arsenal respected him it's all going to be fine like We'll get yeah. a little nervous, but it's all going to be fine again. Who was the last person we really loved who's an Arsenal product who left? Uh, like, even Eddie was at the end of his contract, and he came back. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the slight difference there, right, is that Eddie got a deal he probably wasn't going to get somewhere else at the club he loves, whereas I do think Saka can get But I, I, that's not the reporting I money. heard on him in terms of the contract. Like, no, what I'm trying to say, Paul, is that, like, for Eddie, City, I mean, United, Chelsea, Liverpool, Barca, Madrid, Bayern—you you know, any of them would probably take Bukayo Saka. Eddie was going to go to Palace. You know what I mean? And so we we can say you could stay at the club you love, a bigger club, yeah, and on a really nice way to have a role. Palace, the money was going to be right up there. I get, I get it, but you surely have to acknowledge that, like Bukayo Saka's stature in the game and opportunities, both in terms of earnings and the places he could go would would be the kind that we can't just presume our badge is going to keep him. Yeah, know? he's in a wonderful, wonderful position. Like it, That's why it, I said I think he'll stay. Yeah. I yeah. Agree. I'm just uh, saying and his he has, next he has move, options that he didn't His next have. move it will be where those options are primary. And he's he's looking, is Arsenal going to take me all the way and get me the trophies and the glory and the honors that I require? That'll be the next move. Right now he's just yeah. it's look, it's a win win win. He could not be doing better, happier. Uh, his agent's going to uh, play it slow, get the best deal, and it'll be mostly about optionality. Do you uh, think it'll happen this summer? Uh, yes-ish. Put it at a percentage. What percentage chance do you think it happens this summer? It, like, it could happen over the next six months. That's what I think. I don't know. It'll definitely be the end. They won't leave it till next summer because that gets ugly and Saka won't want that and they won't want all the headlines going... I think somewhere between now and, say, January, it gets sorted, and I'd say that's probably 75%, 80%. It's going to be an interesting litmus test for the extent to which agents drive decisions for players because, Tim, like, I think the player wants to be at I mean, look, we were all there on the final day. We saw the lap of appreciation, the love he received, the love he gave, gave back. It's almost 
impossible for me to envision this player not being at Arsenal, and I'm sure he wants to stay. The agent's going to have a different perspective on that, right? You may go off to the World Cup and star for an England team that goes far in a World Cup. You are cresting into global superstardom at that point. You could move into a position where you have one year left on your deal, having really exploded on the global scene, and I can get you a deal then that maybe I can't get you now. There's no urgency. You don't need to jump to do it now. Let's see where we are next summer. Worst case scenario, we probably still get the same deal that's on the table this summer. Best case scenario, we get a much bigger deal. The agent's interests, if I'm his agent, there is no deal I take this summer, period. But if I'm the player, I may want it done. I may want my future sorted and I don't want it hanging over me. So do you think it's sort of a litmus test to see the extent to which the player's interest drives the negotiation versus what the agent may feel is in their best interest economically? 100%, yeah. And if it's Eddie's agent, that means it's Flo Balogun's agent as yep. well, right? All correct, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, what happened with Balogun and Nketiah? I, I mean, got obviously, to the bitter end, yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. I mean, obviously, you're talking about a different class of player and in Balogun's mm-hmm. um kind of case uh, a very different juncture of the career um, but yeah absolutely if you're the agent you don't do this now but especially not before because I was thinking my prediction is maybe I don't know September October like after the transfer window and all of that and then I was thinking oh yeah there's the World Cup and the, and yeah exactly if you're the agent you say go to the World Cup like because what, what if England win it I mean I don't think they will but what if <laughs> what if England win it and you know if if England win it they have to get past the USA first mate <laughs> <laughs> and you know if 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 England go and win it like like without doubt Saka will have a significant part in that um, and then all of a sudden you're a World Cup winner and then all of a sudden, you know, it's it's like I remember reading something about like Declan Rice and Jack Grealish because, you know, they're but Declan Rice more so had played for Ireland's uh, age groups, but Grealish was um, was was uh, eligible for Ireland as well. And one of the things I'm sure they were advised was not, you know, not just like you've got more ch- chance of winning stuff with England or going deep in tournaments or whatever, but, you know, as a club player, it doesn't matter how good you are as a club player, there is more of a premium on you if you're an England international. Like Damien Duff was a really, really good Premier League player. No doubt in my mind, if he was English, some of those transfer fees, some of his salaries, you know, and that's that's not fair and that's not yeah. reasonable, but that's yeah. the way it is. And so, yeah, and so if he goes to the World Cup and has a stormer, you know, if you're the agent, you're probably saying, yeah, just give it till January, see what happens, see what happens in the World Cup, you know, and then... You can start talking about it then. But yeah, precisely. Like I, I, I think you can boil it down to as simple as that. The sooner it gets done, the more that is down to the player. Um, and all the, the reporting we had just at the beginning of the summer, was it, was about release clauses. And I agree with Paul. I think that is exactly what they're talking about. I, I don't really think, I don't imagine for a minute that there's too much bargaining on money at the moment. Um, I'm sure like, Arsenal will say, here's a 50-year contract. Yeah. And Saka's agent will be saying, hmm, how about one year with a release clause? <laughs> kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's about meeting in the middle between those two interests. So uh there we go. There we go. I, I, I agree with you. The sooner it gets done, the more it's driven by the player, the more it drags on, the more it's driven by the agent. And that's that's fair enough. That's just that's the game. Yeah. And like again, I think it gets done. I don't think it gets done this summer. That's just my instinct. 
um, because I think the agent will say, we're going to keep you at Arsenal, but at least let me negotiate the best deal for you, and I can do that if you wait. And he's successfully done that for two of his players at Arsenal, so he can point to that and be like, look what I did for Eddie. Let me do the same thing for you. I don't think he's going to go to contract expiry to do it because I don't think the club can allow that to happen. But we'll see. And I do think it is an interesting referendum on who is driving the conversation there. My point was merely that like, when you sit down at a negotiating table, you have to have a, the credible ability to push back on the demands of the other side. And in the instances where I don't think we've necessarily had that bargaining power, Oba, Walcott, Ozil, a couple of things like that, I think we've wound up in contracts we regretted. Now, I'm not sure there is a contract we could regret with Saka, frankly, because of how good he is, how young he is, like whatever the contract winds up being. I think we'll probably be very happy to have him at the club. So I think we have a different leverage here, just to make a quick point, than in the three Mm -hmm. cases you cited, in that this project is on the up and it's enhancing him with Mm -hmm. every season. And that was not the same for those other guys. We'd kind of stalled and this was late career for them. And they were thinking, do I move somewhere else or do I stick with this ship that is Arsenal that is it's where it is and it's not going to enhance me. So make it up to me in the pocket. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, those other players were maybe not as much with Walcott, but like Ozil and Oba late stage of prime exiting prime. Right. So yeah, I agree. I agree with all that. Like, it's funny because you can think that we need to be able to get to the negotiating table with some leverage and still think we'll get it done. Tim. Yeah, I was going to say that's a really good point, actually, that um, that Paul's made there in terms of if you're Arsenal looking at leverage, you can say, yeah, you can go to City and you'll win shit, but no one, no one will associate it with you. No one thinks City won the league because of Jack Grealish. No one thinks they won it because of Riyad Mahrez or anything like that. And now, obviously, you know, in the long term, who cares, really? But it's like you're the face of this project and at the that's not going to that's not going to be enough for the rest of your career obviously that's not going to be enough in 3 years or 4 years time but at the moment you are the absolute face front and center of all of this and if it goes in the direction we want it to go you will get a fucking statue <laughs> my boy mm-hmm. if arsenal win the league while you're here you're getting a statue kind of thing so again it depends on the player how much that actually appeals to them how much they care whether they think it's true or not, but that that is a bit of mini leverage that Arsenal do have. Um, again, the uh, the, t- the total and utter dependence line. <laughs> As we move off this topic, let me ask you basically like a one-ish word answer. Is there a number in your mind, Tim, that's reasonable for the club to agree to, but at this point you don't think they should go beyond? In, in terms, terms of his, his salary? Uh, oh God, I haven't thought about this as much as I probably should have. I mean, it looks like the reporting suggests that, again, the reporting around salaries is is notoriously in, inadequate in a lot of um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, scenarios. But it sounds like with all the bonuses chucked in and everything, Gabriel Jesus is going to be around the 200 mark. Like, if Bukayo Saka won, like, said, ah, oh, you're paying him that, uh, I you know, all right. I haven't won four Premier League titles, and I'm not 25, and I haven't scored in a Copper America final and stuff like that. So maybe Arsenal could say, "Well, you can't go above Gabriel Jesus." Um, but you know, if he was to point at that and say, I, "I I want something in that ballpark," I don't think we could complain too much. And that is that is a, a very big number. 
um, for his age. So, but I, I don't think I'd kick back at him asking to be one of the biggest paid players at the club at all. I think we, I think we'd be lucky to get him on two hundred. I would bite his agent's hand off if we put the yeah. number two hundred in front of us. Paul, do you have a number? Uh, probably. Like I don't. My problem with it is I don't think it's going to be the issue because. I don't think that's primary for him. And I think we can give him a big number. Say we give him 200 or up mm-hmm. to 250 uh, and he wants more. I, I'm sure we'll get an agreement that we're going to pay you X now and we will sit down with you in 18 months' time and bump you more. We just, we the club and you need to push through these levels. And he's gonna, like, it's not going to be about money. And there's no way he's going to hold us entirely to ransom over money. So I would say... If it went past 250, I think we're in trouble because now it's all about money. That's fair. The hardest time I ever have agreeing with you where I bristle is the idea that it's not about money for people whose careers are over by age 30. Um, 50,000 pounds a week is 2.6 million pounds a year. And the idea that someone's just going to say, give or take, fine, 2.6 million pounds more over a three-year deal is... 7.5, 7.8 million pounds. And the idea that someone's willing to just say, ah, let's leave the 7.8 million pounds on the table. Like maybe it's because I've never earned a million pounds, right? But like I struggle to see that being a de minimis number where someone's just going to casually say, I love the club. So fine. Like, and I'm sure it happens. I'm sure you're right. But I'm not saying it's not about money. I'm just saying mm-hmm. money is not primary. Like the difference for Saka between 225k and 250k, he doesn't feel that. That goes into his bank. He wouldn't have a fecking clue. And if it's you one think a quarter million pounds a year, it's yeah, but he number. doesn't see it's it. A number that's yeah. no, he does not see it. I don't know what's in my bank account right now that's different than if I'd been paid. Like you just don't know. It, it's about status. It's about respect. It's about how you're seen in the game. In, in mm. particular, they care about money if somebody else in the dressing room or somebody in the national squad and they're all bra- like, it's about like, and Saka isn't particularly that way. The, everybody's that way. Some people are particular. Jamie O'Hara is very, very much that way. It's about Johnny mm. Big Bulls and like, but, uh, and even if he's, even if it's about ultimately his status and money and earnings, if he has a 10-year view, he says, what's the best project for me now to get to my st-? – like, it's way more obtuse than what's the dollar amount on this check going into my bank that I never see, I don't know, people manage my money, or it's a big fucking – you know. It's way more complicated than how much you're paying me. It's just way much. Yeah. doesn't mean money isn't a big factor because in – what is money? Money is status, resources – it's how you're valued. It's respect. It's it's a million things. It can be symbolic as well as obviously yep. very, pr- from a practical standpoint, yep. um, objectively important. But like, no, you're right. And and maybe I suffer from the fact that my first stage of my life as a sports fan was in American sport, where money is talked about very openly. The contracts are public. The players support one another chasing as much money as they can get. They talk about it as a business decision. And those conversations are had right out in the open. And so there's just sort of an acceptance of that. And football is very much not that way. 
It would be different when he's older. Especially a guy getting towards the end of his career who is not in the national team, who is not for going for glory. Like, it's all about money. And you go down the lower leagues, it's all about money because it's closer and closer to the thing that pays your mortgage, not the thing that decides Mm -hmm. how many Bentleys you have. It's just different. It changes. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it, it is also worth pointing out you do see these 38-year-old ex-professionals who made millions of pounds who are who are bankrupt. And yep. so, you know, there's there's it it's it's interesting, right? It's hard to also say that we know anything like a 21 2021 year old person isn't the person they're going to be yet either. Yeah. So, they're still figuring out what's important to them too. But if you're so, we'll, a 38-year-old and you spent all your money, you just proved it wasn't about money. It was about status <laughs> and you went out and spent all your money to live the life and have the status. It's it's very, very complicated. It's not just yeah. about the check. Or you were preyed upon by mm-hmm. predatory family members, friends, entourage, but whatever. Okay, look, I think all of us are probably in the same boat of we hope Saka will stay, we believe Saka will stay, and we think the club and the player will find a way to get this done. The extent to which we position ourselves to A, be able to negotiate that a little more firmly, and B, be well positioned just in case you know, maybe there's something in the Rafinha thing there that that gives us optionality as well as, you know, he's going to be looking for optionality. Now, one of the things that I think gives you optionality is when you know you can add talent. And if you're dependent on a single source of talent, then you have a problem. But if you can depend on uh, acquiring the best talent, then you have optionality. And you know what gives you that optionality? Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. I love Instant Match. I've talked about it a lot. Today, we're going to talk about virtual interviews. One of the things I love about virtual interviews is that it is an adaptation to the work environment we are finding ourselves in increasingly, which is hybrid or remote. And so if there's talent that you want to attract and that talent isn't proximate to your headquarters or the area of operation, it doesn't need to be anymore. But that means you need to be able to interview these people and save time doing it, not trying to figure out when they can fly in, drive in, train in, get to the office, when you're going to get to the office. So with virtual interviews, save time, message schedule, interview top talent, seamlessly all in one place, no plugins, no downloads, nothing extra right from your browser. After using Indeed's virtual interviews, most employers said it saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed data or Indeed data, however you prefer. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for the applications that meet your must-have requirements. Shouldn't the whole world work like that? Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job, plus earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to learn more. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Claim your credits now. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed and... You may have the talent, but do you have the grooming? That's right. Summer is here. The sun is shining. Shirts are off. You're feeling smooth because you've used all the Manscaped products that I've been talking about for so long. You're now ready to go out, hang out. Maybe you're going to wear those short shorts that everybody's wearing. Maybe you're going to wear swim trunks that are a little shorter than you're used to wearing. Nothing peeking out. Nope. Because you've used the Performance Package 4.0. You've used the lawnmower. You've used the Tonics that they have the toners, so you're feeling good down there. Maybe, just maybe you also think about getting those boxers, right? Because they've got that that special pouch area. God, even just saying pouch makes me feel a little uncomfortable. It it is what it is because that's what it's got, and they are very comfortable. These products are going to get you set up for summer, set up for being on the beach, set up for lounging by the pool, set up for when you're running outside or exercising or doing yard work, whatever it is, no chafing, just feeling comfortable and confident and smooth and beautiful. 
And you can do it with the Lawnmower 4.0 with the advanced skin safe technology. You can do it with the toner and deodorant. You can do it with the boxers and the shed travel bag. If you're traveling around this summer, you get the shed travel bag with the performance package 4.0. All of these wonderful things are included. And all you have to do is go to manscaped.com, use promo code Arsenal Vision, and you will save 20% and free worldwide shipping. 20% off and free shipping with the code ArsenalVision at manscaped.com. Go to manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. This is the summer to turn your package into the full package with Manscaped. It says here, Tim, is that enough of that? Indeed. Indeed. I can't just always do the Indeed ad read last. It's not fair to Indeed, but I feel like the Indeed that I get from you or I get from Clive or get from Paul is, is more fun when Indeed was the last ad read, but you get the idea. We have to mix it, mix and match a little bit. Um, there's a topic that Clive has got put into the WhatsApp and said, you need to talk about this. So now I'm being directed. I got, I, I got to pivot, right? And this sometimes happens in game. You got to make a substitution tactical switch. The game's going a certain direction. Someone shouts from the crowd, put on Cedric. And you're like, okay, I guess I got to add Cedric on. So, Tim, one of the things that people are talking about now in the wake of all these rumors, we're going to get Jesus, we're going to get Rafinha, we're going to get Tillemans, we've, we've got Fabio Vieira, we're going to get um, Lissandro Martinez, and I'm sure all of these deals will happen and they'll happen immediately and we'll probably announce them all at once on Monday as this pod has already come out. But there's now this growing idea of no excuses for Arteta, right? There's no excuses. Top four or bust. There's no excuses. And it's difficult because I do think you have to set certain KPIs, right? Key performance indicators. There should be metrics that you use to assess performance. Everyone should have them. I look at how the podcast is doing. I take on board the reviews we get. I take on board the feedback. We try to make it better. At your job, you have KPIs. I'm glad someone does. Yeah, to be fair, someone has to. Not that you would notice it in the way the content is going, but setting that aside, right? Like you need to take that on board. And so there should be that for Arteta. I think Arteta himself would say, I want to be evaluated. No one wants to go into a job feeling there's no standards for performance because that leaves you not really knowing the targets. I mean, you can have your own targets. You can be ambitious. So it's a long way of saying, I do think it's fair to say there are certain KPIs and he needs to try to hit them. The no excuse thing I struggle with because firstly, like it suggests that we are in a position where we should just naturally finish in the top four. And I look at the landscape of the Premier League and the spending that's going on, and I count seven-plus teams that probably feel the same way at this point. Maybe Newcastle isn't there yet. So six teams with massive revenue, in many cases that exceeds far exceeds ours, who will feel that top four is where they rightfully belong. And if they don't land there, it's failure. So where do you come down on the... KPIs for Arteta and the idea that there are, quote, no excuses. I get what it's saying, Tim, which is like, he's got his team now. But what's your, what's your take on on that kind of attitude towards what he has to do this season? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because this is something that uh, I kind of, um, I, I said on Twitter this afternoon and lots of people, um, as, as is want to happen on Twitter, take it the wrong way or mm-hmm. view things like so absolutely dead-eyed through the prism of the manager that, you know, it's like you're either with him or against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're like, you're either being paid to defend him or, you know, all this like nonsense. But I do want to say my defend Arteta check did not clear this <laughs> this week. So I am not going to defend him on this podcast. Exactly. Gloves are coming off. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw what happened with me when the Lacazette protection money stopped, um, you know. 
had to had to send the guys round. No, um, so the thing is with this, like uh, at one hundred percent, there should be KPIs, and and but this is the thing where you finish in the league. Obviously, really important, probably the most important one. It can't be the only one because Arsenal could like this. This could happen, unlikely, but could happen. Arsenal could score fewer goals, lose more games, and get fewer points than last season and finish fourth. Right, that could happen. They could improve in all of those respects and finish sixth or seventh. That could happen. So then, where the hell are you? Which is not why, like, you need more. Like, league position should be a KPI, of course, but you need more than that because you need evidence of sustainability. And what was quite interesting when I said, because I replied to Clive's tweet, right, saying like this ignores like the fine lines of a season. And and like I can't and won't and I don't think the club will or should, um, you know, any sensible club should just go right. Fourth is success and fifth is failure and that is it, because like the journey matters as much as the destination. And a few people replied to me on that, were like, "Oh, you didn't say that about Emery when you fin- when we finished fifth with him, did you?" I was like, "No." That proves my point because I was thinking about the journey, not the destination. I thought we were lucky to finish fifth under Emery. I, I thought we were six sixth place team and I, I think we really rode our luck and I saw no sustainability and no future in it. I feel a bit differently about the way we finished fifth last season, which is not to say I feel that way in perpetuity and therefore Arteta has my undying support for the rest of time or even the rest of next season. Like if we're, 10th in january sack him okay okay like well again if we're 10th and like 20 points off fourth or whatever that because we could be 10th and one point off fourth you know the league could be quite weird but compressed if, yeah mm-hmm. if we're like 20 points off fourth in january yeah sack him like you know it's not working fine we'll go with the next person i'm not that attack like i think arteta wise i'm probably still on the fence insofar as it even matters. I'm trying not to obsess about the reason I'm not obsessing about it is because I don't definitely think he's the wrong person yet. I did like, I did think that with Emery and I I thought that for quite a while, to be honest. And so you, you definitely have to have KPIs, but it can't just be fourth is success and fifth is failure. Like those, those two things that that is kind of true, but how you get there matters and you can't like like you can't just say because and and like i say it works both ways you can be shit and get fourth you can be really good and get six that's just the way the league is at the moment what you're looking for is evidence of continued improvement i think if we buy gabriel jesus and hafinha and Fabi- and we've got fabio vieira and we score as many goals as we did last season or score fewer yeah, that's that's crap. That's an that would be big alarm bells for me. Um, I'm expecting to score more goals next season, but you know, to to kind of ape one of Paul's point favorite points about other teams get to do tactics too. Other teams are buying players as well. Like this is so key. Yeah, yeah. Tottenham aren't scrimping. They're they're looking at Richarlison right to join like Son and Kane. Chelsea aren't scrimping. United aren't. United are about to sign Frankie De Jong. Um, you know, like none of those, t- they're all spending lots of money. So like, you know, they might not all necessarily get better as we saw with Man United last summer, but they but they might and they might get better at a slightly better rate. They might come up more to their level. Like Man United mm-hmm. might still be 
like they should be challenging for the title right that's the level that they're spending demands they can still be well below that and finish above us like it is just as simple as that so really this is a really long-winded way of saying it's complicated and there needs to be more than one thing there needs to be evidence of continued improvement and a reasonable idea that that can be sustainable as well yeah i mean let's say you're you were liverpool and your kpi was win the league right? That's where we're at in our process. We should win the league. When you finish with high 90s points and still don't, did you fail? Like, this is the one thing American sport does have going for it. You want to win a title? It's entirely in your control. Just go beat every team you play, right, in, in the playoffs, and you win, you become world champions of the NFL. <laughs> the world champions of the NBA. Um, but like in football, I, I look at Arsenal, okay? So in, in this season, we finished with 69 points, right? So we had many more points, moved up in the table, scored more goals. 69 points in 2018, 2019 would have seen us finish sixth. But in each of the last two seasons, it would have been comfortably top four, and in one case, top three. Other teams can have bad seasons, and Leicester can win a title. Other teams can have good seasons, and Liverpool can finish second on 97 points. And those things aren't entirely within your control. And I would suggest that Pep... Klopp, Tuchel, Ten Hag, Conte, all good coaches. All the clubs I mentioned with those coaches all have revenues and, and resources that either match ours or exceed ours. And so we're saying Arteta has no excuses to not go and finish ahead of at least two teams, right, that have as much or more resources, a coaches that are absolutely in that caliber, and great talent. Um, you know, I, I think it's the, it's the simple point that like the, the KPIs can't just be tied to league position because it's not entirely in your control. And we have to accept we're moving into a world where there are going to be seven teams every season that think they should be in top four. Newcastle probably isn't there yet, but they're going to be. And so what do you do in a season where you don't finish in the top four? Do you throw your toys out of the pram and say that was the minimum requirement? Well, there's seven teams that go into every season feeling that way. Okay, if you're 20 points off and you had a bad season, that's easy to spot. But what if you're within three points of it and it was that close and you played well and the football looked good? Where I am sympathetic, Paul, to the no excuses argument is this. I don't want to hear excuses that the reason we didn't hit our KPIs has to do with the squad. That's the one area where I will agree. It is very clear to me that we will go into the season with a squad that is assembled according to a plan that Arteta is intimately connected to, that has players that he feels are a priority. I'm not saying it's a finish. You never arrive. But what I don't, if we don't finish top four and we have a good season and, and everything looks good, I'm going to still be able to look at that and say we hit some KPIs and it didn't work out for us. What I don't want to hear is, well, you know, if, if he had just gotten that forward or if he had just got, you know, that's the part I don't want to hear. This definitely feels like a season where we're going to be able to say he's starting the season with roughly the group he wants and he needs to go attack the the position in the table that he wants to achieve. Is that fair to say? No. Um, okay. Football's great. So on the metrics thing, yeah. right? For a hundred years, so, I, I, yeah. has, has hasn't been the case recently. It might be on the KPIs and metrics. Uh, and Tim can back me up here. Like, there's a hundred years where the only thing you could say about a player was how many goals he'd scored. They didn't have assists. They didn't have XG, XA, X anything. They didn't even have assists. It wasn't a thing. Um, And 
Next season, uh, we'll have two clubs ahead of us, Chelsea and Spurs coming out of this season, who will be pissed if they don't finish ahead of us. Like, they think they're already in a better position and they're strengthening. Now, maybe Chelsea will screw up and do a United. Um, And... But I don't see, like, I think Chelsea might be the more vulnerable because of the chaos at the club, potential chaos at the club. Spurs have a world-class manager. And he's not just a world-class manager and coach. He's a world-class judger of horse flesh. He knows exactly what his weaknesses were last season. And he knows exactly how to fill them. And they'll go from a team with a couple of weaknesses to basically no weaknesses. That's pretty hard to run against across a season. Conte is quite good at seasons. Uh, very experienced qua- squad. Ours is a very young squad. We're still learning. We saw that in the run-in. They had more depth already. He's he's worked out where his vulnerabilities were, and they're moving in the market. Spurs are going to be strong. Um, they're I like I don't think they're going to blink. So it's going to be. We'd have to be as consistent as them. Uh, with all our flair. It's very hard with young players. So that's a tough one. It's certainly no gimme. Um, Chelsea, they may open up a door. Um, In terms of the squad, I disagree because Chelsea is a very deep squad and has been for a very long time and super experienced with super depth. Spurs is like, we look at Spurs and we say, that's not a very exciting squad. Conte doesn't want a very exciting squad. He wants that kind of squad with depth. We don't have depth. We're about to throw our money at the attacking end of the pitch where we'll have loads of depth. In midfield, we're a Thomas Party season away from Mohamed Elneny, Granit Xhaka, Sambi Lakonga, this new chap Vieira. Like the middle of the. That, that is a choice, though, right? Like we don't have to go get. Uh huh. Rafinha, we could go get a midfielder. Like, there, yeah, yeah. but these are choices. Yeah, but then we wouldn't have the depth up front. You'd have Saka. Uh, we're all complaining about running Saka into the ground. We'd have Jesus as striker and a kid as backup. Like, if you look at it in terms of Antonio, I'm, I'm not prepared to accept you saying that. You cannot say Enkedi as a kid as a backup. Like, I'm sorry, you don't get to play both sides of it. Like, you do. He's a hundred thousand pound a week, twenty three year old who we like. If we don't think he can play. When we need to, we move don't Jesus have infinite pockets, and we had to, and we've right. got a less, far less developed and mature squad. So we've had to make choices. That Spurs, right, it's not Flo Balogun at backup, like Enkedi, Enkedia is he should be ready to come in and play some Premier League minutes at this point in his career. Like that's you know, yeah, he'll play some. Let's not say a kid at backup, but that's not Richarlison coming in for Son or Kane or Kulisevsky. I mean, it's sure, levels yeah. here. Like, yeah, I agree and with that. so this summer they made choices and they've loaded it into the attacking end. Um, and they may get this Lissandro Martinez guy, so they've got some FB cover, but we'll have Cedric at right back. No Thomas Party uh, cover that gives us what he does. And we're spending our money up front. So we'll be, uh, I'll be pissed if we aren't better, if we can't see our trajectory going forward, if we're not playing much, much better Arteta ball across the season. But there will be excuses for the squad because we're a couple of years behind. We just are. By next summer, we'll be fixing the midfield. What what I think is like, we're making choices, right? We're making choices where Mm -hmm. we want to strengthen and how we want to prioritize. Last summer we did too, by the way. 
We could have brought Saliba back and not bought White. We could have bought an attacker instead of Ramsdale. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm not saying those would have been the right Saliba would have been a 20-year-old centre-back, which only underpins my point that the other guys are working with 27-year-old depth in every position. So we have excuses. Their their cycle is a different place. And again, I wasn't saying those would have been the right things to do. I'm saying squad building is choosing, right? We chose how we wanted to build last summer, and I think it paid off for the most part. I really do. We're choosing that again this summer. We're definitely making choices. There's no two ways about it. But we're not starting from almost 27-year-olds in every position with depth and adding a few extra. That's not where we're at. Last summer, we thought this was a teardown rebuild, and here we are one summer later feeling like we can arrive in the span of two summer windows, which is a a testament to the work they've done. But Tim, like all I'm saying on the excuses front is like, first of all, there have to be KPIs. We may disagree on what they are, but they have to exist. There has to be an ability to say, at a minimum, we think you need to go do this. And if you don't go do this, we're going to regard that as failure. Because if you can't identify what failure is or vice versa, what success is, nobody can really set targets, measure themselves, evaluate how they're doing. I don't think you want to be that nebulous about it. We may disagree what those KPIs are, but they have to exist. On the excuses front, I think where I'm at is simply the idea that like, I am prepared for us to finish sixth this coming season and still be able to see it as success if we built a good attack, we played really well, we finished on high 60s points again or even low 70s points again, but oh, by the way, United on 74 and Spurs on 73 and Chelsea on 76 and Liverpool on 79 and City on 81 and we and we finished in fifth or sixth on 71 points with you know 70 goals scored and a plus 20 goal difference. Like, What can you say? What can you say if that happens? What I don't want to hear, though, is sort of like, oh, well, you know, it's because he had to play um, this winger or he had, you know, he had to rely on Cedric at right back when Tomiyasu got injured. Like, I think the squad is shaping up enough now that in terms of excuses, I don't regard finishing sixth behind five better teams as an excuse. I would regard a failure to see good, effective football, and especially as a result of how we prioritized to be an excuse. I don't want to hear why we can't score more than one goal a game. I don't want to hear why we finish on 56 goals scored. I don't want, you know, I don't want to, like, that's what I'm saying, right? The excuses that have to go now is the football has to really look like it did in that February, March time period fairly consistently. And if it does, I believe we'll finish where we want to. And if we don't, I'm willing to hold my hands up and say, we did our job. I feel like I'm not articulating this well, but when I turn it over to you, you will take that jumbled mess and shape it into something that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, sure. I mean, let's let's look at an example of two different seasons, right? Um, pick an Arteta season where we finished eighth. Um, maybe the second one because it was his first full season. I mean, that was a failure, right? Finishing eighth um, un- under delivery, no doubt about it. Um, but we kind of accepted slash tolerated that on the basis that we were doing a teardown rebuild and we were taking a step back to take two steps forward, right? And so far, on the basis of last season, just gone, we're holding up that side of the bargain, right? We we took a step forward last year. We didn't take two steps forward, necessarily. Right. We were below par. Now we're par because we have the fifth highest salary in the Premier League. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, all right, you've brought us, You w- w- broadly what was said, 
we think, one step back, two steps forward. Well, we've done, you know, we did the step back, now we've taken the step forward, and now we've got to keep going uh, forward, as it were. So, you know, a, a lot of people ask reasonably, like, oh, why, why did, you know, why did we redefine, like, success as eighth? Nobody redefined success as eighth. Nobody thought that eighth was good. Nobody. Right. E- even, like, um, you know, people who do have an agenda to defend Arteta or whatever nonsense thing like no one thought that was good people accepted that because of the promise of jam tomorrow right now let's look at another season arsenal's best premier league finish since 2005 was the 2015-16 season that is the season i probably feel the worst about (laughs) in potentially the premier league era um other than 94-95 our best performance we finished second um, we finished above Spurs on the final day, you know. I, th- I hated it. It was the season I finally thought, I, I want this manager to go. I think we yep. need the manager to go. But because of all of the context around it, that all the other teams had like completely collapsed apart from Leicester, unfortunately. And, and actually, we didn't look... It wasn't even just the missed opportunity. I thought we looked crap during that season. Like, we were playing Joel Campbell on the right, sometimes like Theo Walcott on the left and Joel Campbell on the right. Flamini was, was some, in our midfield. Yeah, Flamini and Ramsey was on midfield too, which was rubbish. It was really dysfunctional. I, and, you know, and we couldn't... Well, and, then, and then, like, we brought Elneny in and sometimes it was Elneny and Flamini. Like, I, I, we played some bad stuff that season finished second but it's it's the season i feel the worst about so and 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 that's why it's not just because because uh, we finished second a few times under wenger where it's like we missed the title on the last day or with a game two and that feels terrible but it's not because you've been terrible like we finished second in 2016 and i thought we were shit it's just we were marginally less shit than everyone else. Basically, we had the same season we were always having at that point. It's just everyone else. That's exactly right. Came down, and so that that's exactly the context. That's the additional context you need. I can enlarge your point too, because the next season after we finished second, we finished fifth on more points with more goals scored and a better goal difference. It just so happens those other clubs came bounced back better than we did. If and you know, there are going to be people screaming at this podcast saying like, "Where are your standards? Why so many excuses?" And what I want to say is it's impossible to ignore the fact that we're only in control of a part of our destiny. If we finish on 79 points with 100 goals scored this season and four clubs finish in the 80s, we will be fifth. And so I I I accept that we should try to come top four. Of course we should. That's the next move. But if other clubs do stuff that is better than we do, and we still do good stuff, I mean, look, it sounds ridiculous. You could finish with 90 points and not be in the top four. I mean, it'd have to be weird set of circumstances based on outcomes for that to happen. But you take my point. So, Paul, thoughts on that? Yeah, I just want to be very clear. I would find it totally unacceptable if we aren't noticeably and clearly much better at football next season. That's that's yeah. not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying we have excuses to be about as good as we are. Like, we should be fucking great to watch for most next season. We should play really good football. That would be a failure. How you measure that, like, good luck, guys. Welcome to football. 
and, and I love it. I love I love the stats. I love the metrics, and I love that it doesn't stop us arguing to death over football. It cannot be resolved. The qualitative versus the quantitative versus the context versus what other clubs do. Like if you play uh, in a league with 19 Manchester cities, you're going to end up with about five points at the end of the season. So context is a thing. Yeah. And like, I I know what I want to see, but it's like so predictable. I think we need to score more goals. I think we need to look more consistently threatening in attack. I think, you know, 61 goals this season was an improvement. It's still nowhere near good enough, Tim. And like, that's an area where I feel pretty comfortable saying we need to be better. And and to be fair, the reason I sort of came around this season is that run we had where we were good, all the metrics, whether you just like basic stuff like goals and points, or you like the underlying stuff like XG and XA, pointed to us performing at a level closer to what those top two or three teams were doing, right? In terms of goals, shots, expected goals, points, if we finish fifth and we kind of ran the top four close next season, but we scored 59 goals again, that to me would be failure, I think, because we have a clear remit to improve the attack. We're clearly trying to improve the attack with our recruitment. And if we still can't do it, that would say to me a persistent issue we've had is an issue we seem to not be able to solve. Now, if we finish fourth with 58 goals scored on 64 points, I think you could very well turn around and say, we got top four, but there's big questions about whether we're moving in the right direction. So everybody's going to have a different sense of what success looks like. This season could have been beyond our wildest dreams of success for this season. Had one result gone a different had had, had Leicester not lost to Spurs by conceding two 95th minute goals, we're top four. Was this a great season? I think if that happens, most people would say yes. But Lester did concede those two goals. And now it's what, a, a bad season? I, that's the problem. I think you need to really be able to say for yourself, and no one can say there's any one-size-fits-all. You have to be able to say for yourself what you're expecting to see. So, Tim, I'm expecting to see we've targeted improving the attack. That has been a durable challenge over the last several seasons. We need to score more goals. We need to be more consistently effective in attack like we were in that February-March time frame. That's a metric a KPI, an area of improvement that I'm comfortable pointing to and saying, I need to see that. And, How about that? and one that Arteta has stated is a clear goal, right? He wants yes. to get yep. 90 goals. So, Yep, I'd love that. Yep. <laughs> Tim. 100%, 100%. That's one of the biggest, that's one of the the K-iest K's of the KPIs um, <laughs> for, 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 next, for next season. Because, it, you know, to your point, Elliot, about, you know, the, the, like, um, you know, the, the, any like, excuses reasons whatever you want to call them next season can't be down to the players like the attack we've been waiting for a long time and i'm sure arteta has for it to be his attack and it will be his. i mean the whole squad other than like maybe cedric and i assume pepe is going to go like one of one of the big blockers one of the big like excuses he had left was i didn't buy pepe i didn't buy bamyang i didn't buy lacazette these guys can't play together problem right but that that definitely two of them have gone one is probably going to go and if even if he doesn't go i don't think he'll I barely think it like in in a world where pepe doesn't go anywhere i don't think i doubt he even kicks a ball um maybe yeah. he doesn't even yeah. get included in like the 25 man squad or whatever like 
we're not seeing Pepe next season, whatever happens. So it will be his attack. Even the young guys like Smith Rowe got a new contract. Martinelli had a new contract under Arteta. Believe it or not, Saka had a new contract under Arteta and we're trying to get him another one. Yep. Um, so like his guys, whoever the striker is, 95% certain it's going to be Gabriel Jesus, his guy, Enketia contract, his guy, you know, Vieira, his guy, Hafinha, if we get him, he's got like, it's all his. Um, and I think we're, we're quite excited about um, some of these potential additions as well, but hundred percent. And one of the good things, uh, like I said on a previous pod about last summer, it wasn't just that we spent loads of money, spent loads of money and got better. We spent money on guys who fitted what Arteta wanted. And we moved more towards that kind of four, three, three type football. Like, this isn't this is such a big part of that and and don't get me wrong as well like it's not just the kind of the high-minded system tactic stuff if we drop like 115 million on jesus and hafinha and 30 million on Vieira, and we don't get better in attack there is a problem and it is a problem with the style of football we're trying to play now i don't think i believe that i do think it's largely been a personnel issue uh, particularly based on what I saw last season, but a hundred percent. Like I, I expect to see at least ten more Premier League goals, and and I think that's a fairly conservative ceiling I'm putting on it. Like I'm thinking, even if you want to kind of use that, well, maybe they need a season to knit together or whatever. Like ten to fifteen more Premier League goals is about what I'm expecting, and I wouldn't, you know. I wouldn't call it an enormous surprising performance if it was even more than that, to be honest. We have not scored enough goals and that has stopped us doing what we needed to do, not just in the Premier League, Europa League as well. When it came to Villarreal and we needed one fucking goal in 90 minutes at the Emirates, we couldn't get it. And that, yeah. like, that shit has to stop. So yeah, I, I, I think that is right up there KPI-wise, 100%. Yeah, Paul, are you willing to co-sign that? Yeah, yeah, hey, amen. Uh, like, we where where we have spent our money is getting goals. What has Arteta said? He needs players to get goals. We've gone and signed expensive players who look like they get goals for other teams. Yeah, I think a minimum of ten goals uh, is a reasonable KPI that even fifty years ago was understood in the game. So I can get my head around that one. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I do think uh, to some extent, if the season is failure, that's pretty easy to spot. I mean, at the margins, we may argue, but like, we made an eight point improvement this season. That's a pretty big improvement point wise, um, with a lot more goals scored um, and a run in that was sort of plagued by injuries. And, you know, we could get into, well, you know, if we had built the squad differently, those injuries, we might've been protected from those injuries or he made weird choices about how he dealt with it. Set, set that aside. Um, if we regress, if we're low sixties points next season, if we don't add goals, like, I don't think it's going to be hard to spot failure. We may not all agree on success, but I think it'll be Fairly easy to spot failure. I mean, it's easy to forget Tottenham, as much as I hate to point this out, they made a nine-point improvement this season. That's why we finished fifth. Because Tottenham improved by nine points. That's a huge improvement. They went from 62 to 71. We went from 61 to 69. And, you know, like, 
our trajectory continue. I mean, if you improve eight points per season, I would take that. Would you take 70, 77 points next season? I yep. would. Yeah. And then after that, would you take 85 points? And after that, 92, 93. Now, look, I know a lot of people are saying as you get higher and higher, the the ability to make those gains are small, right? Like if you finish on 40 points one season, going to 48 is pretty easy. Going from 90 to 98 is really, really hard. So I, I get that. I, and so that that undercuts my point a little, but it's the point that like we made an amount of progress from a point standpoint this season. And I think from a footballing standpoint that satisfies me. I'm not saying satisfies me where I say it's enough, but satisfies me to say, I think this season was progress and I can feel okay about the trajectory. It. Not about how it ended. Yeah. Trajectory wise. I think failure now, you know, here's what was hard when you're eighth and you're trying to get better. It's sort of hard to spot failure because you're coming from failure. Now we're back to a level in the Europa League, high 60s points, where I think failure will be easy to spot. We finish with 60 points next season and, and you know, 60 goals scored. I don't think there's going to be anybody left saying we're fine, except for the absolute acolytes. You know, the, the, and, and by, by the same token, I think if we get to 72 or 73 points and our goal totals increase, I think most people are going to say we did well. There will still be some people who, if that's not top four, are going to say still not good enough. And, and the one thing I want to be clear about is if you believe it's top four or bust and if he can't deliver that, he should go. I can, all I can say is I get it. I really do get it. But this is not the Premier League of Arsene Wenger's era. This is not a Premier League where maybe five clubs have an argument for it, but really just four and you, are, you just have to avoid the catastrophe season. There are so many clubs that can be good. And it's not just the Newcastle, Liverpool, City, United, Spurs, Arsenal, Chelsea. Leicester can bounce back into the conversation very, very easily. There are other clubs poised to be right there in that. West Ham, you know, the money in the Premier League has, has made it such that you can be good, you can have a good season, you can achieve a lot of the KPIs you want and find yourself outside of the position in the table you expected to finish in. So that's going to be a challenge and force us to, I think, improve our thing. I will say this, you guys. The Europa League has to be a target. That is a competition we can go deep in. Even when we weren't good, we went deep in it. And winning it gets you Champions League. And oh, by the way, winning it gets you a European trophy. And I do think if I have a criticism of Arteta, I actually think he hasn't been good in that. Easy to remember, first season got knocked out by Olympiacos. Terrible. He was the his worst performance in the Europa League was last season. I agree, easily, easily his worst. We didn't even win a single game in the Europa League last season. So, but yeah, but so that that maybe that's going to be a KPI that sneaks into the conversation. So, for example, if we finish Tim on, and we'll wrap up here. But if we finish on sixty nine points again, and our goal total improves, and we find ourselves just out of the top four again, but we had a last sixteen exit in the Europa League. Maybe that's some context that's going to move the needle. And I realize knockout football is such a crapshoot, but like you can't lose to a you know a mid-table Dutch team in this round of sixteen. The Europa League, you get where I'm going, right? Like you can't get knocked out by Olympiacos again. So, do you think that that the Europa League might be that little bit of context outside of the Premier League for how we view the season success-wise? Of, of course, of course. I think it's more than fair to throw that in because you probably don't, you definitely don't throw in the League Cup and you probably don't even throw in the FA Cup um, yeah, I as an actual yeah. 
measure of success because winning it in 2020 didn't mean we'd been good and had a good season. It meant we won something and that was great. Didn't mean we were good that season though. Um, And likewise, going out in the third round to Nottingham Forest last season didn't mean that we were terrible and everything was dreadful last season. Mm -hmm. So I think you throw those out. I think Europa League, perfectly fair, perfectly fair to throw that in. Um, and it's it's perfectly fair because of the way the competition is staged as well. So it, it's not a crapshoot like the FA Cup and the League Cup kind of are because it's not straight knockout at the group stage element. And then it's seeded. And really, it's not until you get to like the last eight that you really start looking at teams and thinking, okay, this this isn't going to be easy kind of thing. So I, I think it's perfectly fair to throw that in. I, obviously as well, it's another route into the Champions League. But again, like what, <laughs> and again, this is unlikely. What if we finish 17th to win the Europa League? <laughs> like, Does that mean the season was a success? Not I, really. It doesn't mean we I played well. I with you. I might take that. <laughs> that, that would be a really I mean, be fun funny. one to ask on Twitter. Would you take 17th, but we win the Europa League, we're in the Champions League, we have yeah, a European yeah. trophy? Like The, the only way that happens, though, is if he loses the last 12 games or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, because he, he doesn't make it yeah, to the Europa League. He survive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. Yeah, it's yeah, still yeah. Fun, funny to think about. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I, I, I think it is fair to... To, to throw that into the mix. But again, with the context around it and blah de blah de blah like it's not as simple as win it or you're sacked, yeah. um, I don't think. But yeah, and, and you know, if you miss, like, if you miss fourth by a point and we lose the Europa League final on penalties, like, you know, I don't think it's fair to say, well, that was a complete failure. Like, um, you know, it, it just, it, it all depends. And ultimately... What we all have to do is watch what happens during the season and, and we make our minds up based on what we see. I think the thing it's we like can't afford... It's like pornography, Elliot. You know, you know it when you see, see it. it. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know what? No. I'm just <laughs> um, I, and, and I'll say this. The one thing I don't think we can afford, we can't afford to sort of find ourselves a little bit cut adrift early where we have to claw it back because that World Cup break... It is going to be a really, really difficult thing if we're like 10 points off fourth place in that point. It doesn't mean it can't be recovered, but I, I think it's going to create a very difficult time. So I do want to pivot now to our five subs and World Cup conversation. No, I'm kidding. We're at 90 minutes. That's it. Clive did it. He went into the WhatsApp. He 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 felt a, a, he felt a disruption in the force. They're going to talk about five subs without me. He lobbed a grenade in disrupted the conversation such that we can't talk five subs or world cup. So we'll do that on a, a very near future pod. Those are, those are two conversations, especially five subs that I think is really intimately tied to how this season is going to shape up. So I do want to get to it, but not today. And with that, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks. Pause. Woo-hoo! Tim's on Twitter. Super Thanks Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. You must, must block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. It is really the soundest advice I can give you. I do want to tell you as we often do, but still not enough. We love you so much. Thank you for sharing this time with us. And it, it, it does feel like we are through the looking glass a little bit in terms of transfer strategy, but not just for Arsenal, but for a lot of teams in the league. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of re-imagining and re-exploring how we think about the competitiveness of this league. It is really changing in interesting ways. Um, and hopefully Todd Bowley will ensure that it changes in uh, funny, hilarious, and better ways as well. We'll leave it there. We love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal Time Transfer. window. Don't know.